Turn your Bible with me to Romans chapter 6. When someone is living in an ongoing pattern of sin, what is the remedy? Most people would say, well, you know, if you're going to stop someone from doing wrong, you're going to have to lay down the law. You're going to have to clearly define the rules and the regulations and then threaten them with severe punishment if they don't conform. That's the way we naturally think, right? And that's what raises the question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul says, if, if we're saved by grace apart from works, then what's to keep us from continuing in sin? How are we going to break this pattern of sin? If you take the law out of the picture, how are you ever going to control people? And how does Paul answer that? Well, you might expect him to backpedal at this point and say, well, you know, I was just talking about taking the law out in reference to justification, but I wasn't really talking about sanctification. You might expect Paul to backpedal and say, you know, the, the law is out of the picture when it comes to salvation, but once you get saved, then we bring the law back in the picture and we're going to dump it on you. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says that we need to understand what grace does. Because grace does something the law never could. The law controls you. Grace changes you. The law constrains you. Grace kills you. Grace takes you, an unworthy sinner, and places you in Christ so that you died in Him and you were buried in Him and you rose in Him. And so Paul's message in Romans chapter 6 is that you and I need to know that, verses 3 to 10, know that you're dead to sin and alive to God, you need to consider that, verse 11, that you're dead to sin and alive to God. And then you need to present, verses 12 to 14, yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You need to understand it, you need to believe it, and you need to act like it. And then having said all that, he reinforces his position in verse 14. He says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What is it that assures me that sin will no longer be the master over me? Is it because we're put back under law? No. It's because we're not under law. Now Paul's saying something there that runs counter to the way we naturally think. And I'm not sure we all grasp this. In fact, I would be shocked if we all really have a grasp on what Paul is saying here. And so what I want to do is I want to camp out in this verse for a little while. And I want to let the full force of these statements hit us. You are not under law. You are under grace. Now a lot of people have allowed these words of Paul to die the death of a thousand qualifications. Well, he doesn't really mean this and he obviously doesn't mean that. You know, the theologians in the Middle Ages, men like Thomas Aquinas, came up with a threefold distinction of the law. There's the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. And those distinctions are helpful in understanding 
the Old Testament law, and you certainly can find those different kinds of laws there, but we have to be careful that we don't apply those distinctions when we come to a passage like Romans chapter 6. Because you see, the law does not divide itself into those three parts. Nowhere in the law will you find the phrase, this is now the civil law, or this is now the moral law. No, the law is the law. And the same is true in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Paul doesn't qualify these words by saying you're not under the ceremonial law or you're not under the civil law. He clearly says in verse 14, we are not under law. We are not under the Old Testament law. We are not under the Old Covenant. We are not under a legal system. We are not under the merit system. We are operating under grace. The law is conditional. Under the law, God said, if you obey me, then I will bless you. Grace is unconditional. God says, I have blessed you far beyond your wildest imaginations. Now, won't you please obey me? What has Christ done with the law? We'll turn over a few pages to Romans 10 and 4. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, does that mean he's the end of the law? That's right, he's the end of the law. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17 that I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law? Yes, he did. And Christ fulfilled the moral requirements of the law by living a perfect life and by dying the death to pay for our punishment for those sins and by taking his righteousness and putting it to your account by faith. He fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. He also fulfilled the ceremonial requirements of the law by being the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, and giving us the privilege, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19, to have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way. And then also he fulfilled the civil requirements of the law by establishing his kingdom on earth. He said to the chief priests and the elders of Jerusalem in Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And so Christ fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law, and therefore it is ended. You say, well, I've always been taught that in a verse like Romans 10, 4, he's just talking about the ceremonial law. Or he's just talking about the civil law. Well, what does Paul say in Romans 10.4? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If you want to divide it up, which part is he talking about? He's talking about the moral law. He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about the part we want to still hold on to. You see, Christ is the end of the whole law. Now, what does that mean to you and me? Well, number one, it means that the law has ended as a means of justification. In Acts 13.39, Paul's first recorded missionary message was this, 
Through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not set anyone free from sin. Couldn't then, can't now, never will. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law cannot set anyone free from sin and it can't make anyone righteous. And so it's rather obvious that it is ended as a means of justification. But secondly, it means that the law has ended as a means of sanctification. And to show you that, let me have you turn over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Galatians 3, 2. And here Paul asks a question. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. I just want to ask you one thing. And then as a preacher does, he asks them about three things. I just want to ask you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get saved? Did you get saved by the works of the law or by faith? And the answer goes without saying, it's by faith. And then he follows that in verse 3 by saying, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now that you're saved, are you so foolish to think that sanctification is a matter of going back and trying to keep the law? won't happen that way. You see, the law has no part in your salvation And the law has no part in your sanctification. And that's Paul's point in Romans 6.14. The reason we are no longer slaves to sin is because we are no longer under law. The law has ended as a means of justification and as a means of sanctification. Now, as I said earlier, a lot of Christians struggle to understand this. So I want to try to help you with it. And what I want to do in our time this morning, and, and again, we're not going to get through this verse. So, and I apologize for slowing down, but this is so good and so important and so fundamental to our Christian lives that I want you to comprehend this. And so this phrase, you are not under sin, I want to take that phrase this morning and I want to try to explain to you exactly what that means. I want you to understand what your relationship is to the law as a Christian. And I found that the New Testament answers that by giving us eight illustrations, eight analogies of you as a Christian and your relationship to the law. And I want you to to show you those eight analogies this morning. I want to give you this comprehensive picture of what your relationship as a Christian is to the law. First analogy, the law is your ex-husband. Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. Paul says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Now he's simply saying there, when you get married, you get married till death do you part. Now why does he bring that up? Well, he brings that up because he wants to tell us in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. Did you get that? You were married to the law. 
The law was your husband, and he was a demanding tyrant that you could never satisfy. But you're not married to him anymore. The law is your ex-husband. But the good news is, you have not simply divorced him. Death has parted you. Do you see that in verse 4? You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. You were married to the law. You have died, and so that marriage is no longer intact. It's over. You see, listen to me. The law can no more tell you what to do than a husband can tell his dead wife what to do. Look at verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We were bound. We were in marriage. We have been released. The marriage is over. But guess what? You know who you're married to now under grace? Look at verse 4. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. Who's that? To him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. You are now the bride of Christ. You had a tyrant husband that was leading you around and you could never please him. You have died and now you are married to Jesus Christ. And now he leads you around with nail-scarred hands. That's grace. Second analogy. The law is your elementary school teacher. And for that, look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Now, in that culture... A son, while he was still a young child, was controlled by guardians. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says he was really no different than a slave. He was held in bondage under governesses and tutors. But when he came of age, he was set free from their control, and he came into all the rights and privileges of being a son. And Paul is using that cultural analogy to say that the law was our tutor, The law was our elementary school teacher. It gave us rules and regulations to keep us in line and to point us to Christ. And now that we've come to Christ, we have come into the privileges and the rights of being sons. And so what is our relationship with the law? Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the law. The law is your elementary school teacher and you've graduated. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your first grade teacher. But, you know, I may visit her once in a while, but she doesn't tell me what to do anymore. That's our relationship to the law. She is your elementary school teacher. She served a purpose. She pointed you to Christ. Now that you've come to Christ, you don't go into that classroom anymore. Third analogy. And this one I had trouble with. You may want to edit it. I called it your fleshly, plan B, surrogate slave woman. It's the best I could do. That's condensed from what I had. 
Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You want to put yourself under the law. Don't you listen to what the law says? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. He had Isaac and Ishmael, right? Verse 23, but the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through the promise. This contains an allegory, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now you remember the story of Hagar, don't you? Abraham received the promise from God that he would have a son. And rather than waiting for God to bring about that miracle, Abraham got impatient. He was 86 years old, Sarah was 75 years old, and time was a-wasting. So rather than waiting on God for plan A, he went ahead with plan B. Plan B was Sarah's slave girl, Hagar. Plan B was trying to accomplish God's purposes in his strength. That's why verse 23 says it was according to the flesh. It was a fleshly thing to do. It was apart from God. And who did Hagar give birth to? Ishmael, and our passage says, he was a slave. Because slave women always give birth to slave children. Now, what's Paul's analogy? Well, verse 24 says that Hagar represents the covenant that came from Mount Sinai. Now, what's the covenant that came from Mount Sinai? That's the law of Moses. That's the Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying the law is plan B. The law is man attempting in his own strength to accomplish the purposes of God. And what does plan B produce? What does the law produce? It produces slaves. It produces people who are in bondage. So what is our relationship to the law? Look at verse 30. Paul says, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Throw her out. And then he goes on to say, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Law and grace don't mix. The old covenant and the new covenant don't mix. One gives birth to slaves, the other gives birth to sons and heirs. And that's our new position in grace. He says in verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. We are children of the new covenant. We are children of the promise. We, like Isaac, are miracle children of God. That's our position under grace. Fourth analogy. The law is an unbearable yoke. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, a yoke was a collar that you put on a pair of oxen so that they could pull a plow or pull a heavy load. And what is the yoke of slavery that Paul is referring to here? Well, it's the law. It's that heavy burden that he describes in verse 3 of chapter 5 as us being under obligation to keep the whole law. There is no heavier burden than that. 
In Acts 15.5, some Jewish believers stood up at the council in Jerusalem and said this about the Gentile believers. They said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, what were they saying? It's okay that they got saved by faith, but when it comes to sanctification, we need to tell them they have to obey the law. And Peter stood up, and here's what he said in verse 10. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Our fathers couldn't bear that yoke. We couldn't bear that yoke, so why are you putting it on them? You see, the law is an unbearable burden. It's a yoke of slavery. And so what does Paul tell us to do with it? He said, you have been set free from the law, and so do not subject yourself to it again. You see the analogy? You were a slave with a yoke on your neck, pulling a burden that was unbearable, a a burden that was unmovable. Christ has set you free from that. And Paul says, why would you want to go back and put your neck in the noose, in the yoke of the law again? You see, that's absurd. You are not under law. You know, grace gives you a yoke also. You know what it is? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fifth analogy of the law is that it's a dividing wall. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. Ephesians 2.14 For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now the two groups that He's talking about here are the Jews and the Gentiles. And there has been a long-standing barrier between them. That was visually illustrated in the temple. When When a Gentile went to the temple to worship, he came into the temple and what did he find? He found a place called the Court of the Gentiles a place where he could go and and be a little part of the temple. But if he tried to go beyond the court of the Gentiles, he ran into a barrier, a literal barrier. It was a wall three and a half feet tall, and it had no trespassing signs on it. In fact, a couple of those signs have been recovered by archaeologists. One is in the museum at Istanbul. It's a limestone slab, and inscribed on it are these words, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Doesn't that sound like a nice place to worship? Really kind of makes it inviting for you to really kind of open up with God. You're in your space and don't go past it or you'll die. Paul ran into problems with that same dividing wall. On one occasion in Acts 21, an angry mob was ready to kill the Apostle Paul because they had been falsely informed that he had taken a Gentile by the name of Trophimus into the temple beyond that dividing wall. Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus has broken down that dividing wall. 
Now, he's not talking literally because as Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, that wall was still standing. It would still be standing until 70 A.D. So what wall is Paul talking about when he says he's broken down the wall? Well, verse 15 tells us. He did it by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The dividing wall that Jesus broke down was the law. And he refers to it in verse 15 as the enmity. How does the law cause enmity between these two groups? How how is the law a dividing wall? I think we still see that today. You see, the law allows you to have tangible criteria by which you can judge others. The law allows you to keep score. The the law allows you to divide people into the haves and the have-nots based on fleshly performance. Paul described the way he viewed himself under the law in Philippians 3.6. He says, As to righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. You see, Paul under the law was always keeping score. But let me ask you, what is our relationship to the law? Well, underline that word in verse 15 that says that Jesus has abolished it. You see, there are no courts in the Christian community. There's not a court of the Gentiles. There's not a court of the little tithers and the big tithers. There's no no walls in the Christian community. In fact, the very veil into the holy, holy of holy places has been torn in two. There are no barriers in the Christian community. And our standing today under grace is described in verse 15. He has made us one new man and we have peace. In verse 19, he says, we are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. In verses 21 and 22, he says, we are individually parts of the living temple. Not the old temple under the old covenant. We are part of the living temple where the Spirit of God dwells. That's our position under grace. And then sixthly, the law is your canceled debt book. And for that, look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, what was the certificate of debt? Well, it's the law. And Paul clarifies that by saying it's consisting of decrees against us. And he adds that the law was hostile to us because it just kept saying guilty, guilty, guilty. See, every law you have ever broken adds to that debt that you can never pay. When I was in school in Chicago, one of the laws of the community of Oak Park was that you could not park your car on the street overnight. One of the students in the school thought that was a rather silly law, and so he ignored it. Every morning, he would come out and take a ticket off his windshield wiper 
and toss it into the floorboard of his back seat. And he did that until he had about a six or eight inch pile all the way across the floorboard of his back of his car. And he went along like that until the village contacted the school. And then he had to face the music. And he found himself owing a fine he couldn't pay. You see, that is and was our condition under the law. We faced a debt we could never pay. But what did God do? It says, He nailed our certificate of debt to the cross. Now, the Romans had a custom that when they crucified someone, they always nailed the crime that that individual had committed above their head because they wanted people to know why they were dying. Jesus committed no crime, so what did they nail above his head? King of the Jews. This verse tells us that God nailed something there. God nailed our certificate of debt above Jesus' head because that is the crime for which he died. And so what is our relationship to the law? Verse 14 says Jesus has canceled it and taken it out of the way. Now what does that mean? You don't owe the law anything. You don't have to look in the law and say, whoops, there's a payment I didn't make. The other day I was going through some files and I came across the old payment book for our previous house. Now that house has been sold and paid off. So this is a, this is a payment book that's been canceled. You know what's nice about thumbing through a payment book that's been canceled? No hostility there. You know, you just thumb through and look at it and dream about it. It has no connection to you. You know what I did with that payment book, that debt book? I threw it away. And Paul is saying that is our relationship to the law. It's our old payment book. And the debt has been canceled, and it says Jesus has taken it out of the way. It's finished. It's gone. It's over. That's why Paul will say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's a seventh analogy. And that is, the law is a shadow. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, look at, look at this carefully. Don't let anybody judge you about food or drink. That refers to the dietary laws in the Old Testament. A festival or a new moon, that would be ceremonial laws. Or a Sabbath day. Where's the Sabbath day come? That's the Ten Commandments. So he's saying here... Don't let anybody judge you in respect to law-keeping. Why not? Verse 17, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The, shadow, the, the law was a mere shadow of what was to come. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 10.1, The law is only a shadow of the good things to come. You see, the law is just the shadow. Jesus is the substance. 
The sun sets behind our house. So in the early evening, if I'm sitting on the porch, I can tell that our neighbor is coming over to our house long before he gets there. Because he's walking with the sun behind him and the shadow comes around the side of my house before he does. Now, when he comes around the side of my house, it would be pretty odd for me to run over and hug his shadow, wouldn't it? It might be pretty odd for me to run over and hug him. But you see, the point is that the shadow tells me he's coming when he has arrived. I don't need the shadow anymore. The law is the shadow that told us Jesus is coming. Jesus has come. He's here. Don't let anybody tell you to go hug the shadow. You have the substance in Jesus Christ. And then a final analogy, an eighth analogy. It's, it's a mirror James says in James 1.23 that looking into the law is like looking into a mirror. It reveals our flaws. Remember uh, Fonzie on Happy Days? Fonzie, if they had a scene with a mirror, Fonzie would always look in the mirror and he would take his comb out and he would pull it up like this and then he would stop. And he would realize that he didn't need to fix anything. And he'd put his comb back up and he'd walk away. Well, if you're honest with the law and you look in the law, you can't come to that conclusion. Because because what the law does is it shows you your flaws. It shows you how far short you fall. In fact, Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's a mirror. But that's all it is. It can show you your flaws. problem is, can't fix your flaws. But you know what? Under grace, we get a new mirror. And that that mirror is described to us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. When we look into the Old Covenant, we see ourselves and our shortcomings and we're powerless to do anything about it. But when we look into the New Covenant, we see the glory of the Lord. We have the experience that Moses had on the top of Mount Sinai. We we get to interface with the Lord. We have the experience of going inside the veil into the holy of holy places. And this verse tells us that in the presence of of His glory, we are transformed into His image. That's what it means to be under grace. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But what I want you to understand this morning is that you are not under law. Because the two don't mix. You can't mix law and grace. You've got to understand your position. You are not under law. The law is your ex-husband. He's not telling you what to do anymore. The law is your elementary school teacher. You're no longer under her authority. The law is your fleshly, plan B, surrogate slave woman. And like Abraham, you are to get rid of her. The law is an unbearable yoke. And you're not to put yourself under it again. The law is a dividing wall. And Jesus has demolished it. The law is your canceled debt book. 
and it has been nailed to the cross. The law is a shadow, and you do not need it now that you have the substance. And the law is a mirror that can only show you your sin. And it's been replaced by the mirror of the new covenant that transforms you into the glory of the image of God. I'm going to close this morning with an invitation. I'm going to ask Kim and Fred and Chad to come back. And I'm just going to ask you to stay seated this morning. But as they sing, this is an invitation to come to the table of grace. God offers that. And I'm going to offer you that invitation this morning. However God has spoken to your heart, I'm going to ask you to get up. People will move out of your way. You move to the aisle and come down to the front saying, Lord, I want this relationship with you. You see, this is not about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. Not coming to be put under law. You're already under law. You're condemned under law. You're coming to be under grace. The grace that was paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. So as they sing, you come to the table of grace.